Hey, we're going to be in John chapter 2. So if you don't mind turning there right now, John chapter 2. You turn there as I turn there in my Bible. And if you need a Bible, if you'll look in front of you in the Pew Bible, if you'll grab that, uh, we would love for you to turn in the scriptures with us. John chapter 2. And in that Pew Bible, it's going to be on page 887. Some of you also said this week that you have the same ESV slimline Bible that I have, and you love when I call out the numbers because that gives you a quick shot to the scripture. You're welcome. All right. So uh, we're here in John chapter two. We're going to look at verses 12 through 22. And as we look into the scriptures today, we see that Christ turns the tables. Christ turns the tables. Last week, we looked at eternal festival joy. That's what Christ brings to our lives, eternal festival joy. And there was a miracle of grace. As the, ran, as, as the wine ran dry there at the marriage feast in Cana, uh, Jesus brought an abundance of wine ever flowing for that time together with the people. And it represented for us how his grace is always overflowing. A, a miracle of grace as he turned water into wine. Today, we see a miracle of judgment. Miracle of judgment. Same chapter, chapter two. One, a miracle of grace. The next, a miracle of judgment, which may lead us to think, wow, so is Jesus kind of split personalities? In one, we seem happy and joyful. And in another, we seem with a, a completely different countenance. He's angry, kind of like a Lego minifiguring. We have a bunch of those around our house. Always fun when you step on one. But they have the little heads, and on one side, there's a, a smiley face. And you turn that head, though, he becomes a completely different character altogether. And he may be mad, an angry look, and he becomes an enemy. And you think, is that Jesus? Is Jesus just happy one day and then just mad the next day? Is he having a hard time controlling his emotions? Maybe you're concerned about this in your own prayer life. Is Jesus happy with me today or is he upset with me today? And you may compare that to your parents or uh, your grandparents or somebody who's been very close to you in life who's displayed that type of behavior. But this is not Jesus. You see, Jesus is happy and he is angry. He is filled with joy, but he comes forth with judgment because he always has a love for the Father. This is not two types of Jesus here. Same Jesus. Just wanted to highlight that as we get started today. And so follow with me. John chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. After this, he went to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples. And they stayed there for a few days. The Passover of the Jews was at hand and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, a few things that I want to point out here that we see in these two verses. One, this is the last time that we will see the mother of Jesus until the end of the book. You think, wow, I mean, she's a significant person. I mean, she birthed Christ and what a privilege it was for her to be the mother of Jesus. And this is all by God's grace. It's not because she was magnificent in herself, but because of God's grace upon her. And so she's going to fade into the background and we're not going to see her until the end of the book. And I think John does this intentionally because it's not about the mother of Jesus, but it's about Jesus. 
And this is important for other religions uh, to take hold of this when they exalt Mary to be in a position that she does not belong. Because it's always Christ that ought to be exalted. So she goes to the background after this. We don't see her until the end. But then we also see that Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Why was he going up? Because Jerusalem is a mountain city. So it sits high above all the other surrounding territories. It's a city on a hill that cannot be hidden. And during this time in the city of a hill that cannot be hidden, there was the Passover. The Passover of the Jews was at hand. So just to remind you of the Passover, it's when God delivered his people from slavery in Egypt. The Passover observed the blood of a lamb poured out upon the doorframe of the homes in Egypt when the judgment of God passed over those covered under the blood of a lamb. So every year they would have this Passover feast. It would last a week and they would remember what God had done and spared them because of the blood of a lamb. But when they look back to what happened in Egypt, so in first century, before it all points to Jesus, before they realize that it points to Jesus, they're reflecting on what happened in Egypt because this was real blood, which saved real people from a real judgment leading to a real rescue from real slavery. And so they're grateful because this is their heritage, how God has delivered them as a chosen people. But we also know that this was also a glorious picture of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, who poured out his real blood upon the frame of the cross to save a real people, provide a real rescue from real slavery of sin and brought into a real everlasting relationship with God. But before all of this becomes a reality, for many, the Jewish people celebrated the Passover feast once a week or one week out of the year. So normally about 2,000 or not 2,000, 200,000 to 300,000 people lived within the city. But when it came to the Passover, it would be close to one to two million people. You say, that's a pretty wide gap between one and two million people coming into the city. There's different opinions on it, but a million people crowding into this place. And there was an excitement that would swell among the city, much like when it gets close to Christmas time around here. There's an excitement. There's an anticipation that flows through the streets flows through the neighborhoods. This is a similar type experience that would happen in Jerusalem as the spirit of the Passover would spread through the town. And the special week required a special sacrifice for each family, which meant an estimated 250,000 animals were slaughtered during the week. So instead of reading this, if we're watching this happen, there will be something that come up on the screen that says, yes, thousands of animals were harmed in the filming of this event. Why were they slaughtered as sacrifice for something greater to come? So these blood sacrifices took place at the temple where the blood poured forth freely. Or was it so free? That's the problem in John chapter 2. 
Jesus is walking into the temple and he's not seeing the blood pour forth freely, but there are charges and taxation. There are criminal acts that are taking place in the temple, the focal point for God to be among his people. John chapter 2, 14 through 16. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there and making a whip of cords. He drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. So Christ turns the tables in the temple. As we said, the temple is the focal point of the Passover. And there's a big problem that's taking place in the temple as Jesus enters in. And we're reminded when we look back of the purpose of the temple, David, that being King David, is speaking to his son Solomon in 1 Chronicles 28. And he's sharing with them the plans of the temple. Now, David, he wanted to build a temple. He had such a heart for the temple, a house of God. God, you need a house to be in. So much so that he felt bad for the place that he lived in. He says, God, you need a house. You need a, a glorious palace to live in. And he had these plans that he had written, but God told him, David, you've shed too much blood. You will not be allowed to build this temple with your hands. It's going to be for your son Solomon. And so that's the scene here in 1 Chronicles 28, 19. And this is what he says to his son all this he made clear to me in writing from the hand of the Lord, all the work to be done according to the plan. Now, this morning in our groups, we studied about the tabernacle and all the precise measurements. Why all the precision? Because God is holy. And by his direction, he determines how the house should be built because it should be all about him. And David is saying this according to the plan. Solomon, you take this plan and don't you veer from it. Don't you waver from it. And then he speaks to the assembly gathered around in 1 Chronicles 29, verse 1. Again, King David, he says, For the palace will not be for man, but for the Lord God. But as we see the scene unfold here in John chapter 2, the temple has become a palace for man, not a palace for the Lord God. And as the Lord God approaches, that being Jesus, he is angry. And he is about to create a miracle of judgment. You say, a miracle, it's not quite like turning water into wine, is it? He takes a few cords and he drives out everyone. We're going to talk about the significance of that in just a moment. But what a most appropriate and opportune time for the Lord God to enter in and intervene. So you may ask this now, was it really a big deal what was happening in the temple courts? Is this really a big deal for Jesus to get upset with? Well, first, why were people buying animals? Well, many people were coming from far distances to observe the Passover, tens and hundreds of miles. Can you imagine traveling back then with oxen and sheep 
And pigeons, I'm sure pigeons were an aggravation. So they said, you know what? We'll wait until we get into the city. And so this could have been a very gracious provision for the people that then led to something that was very selfish. But think about how difficult it is for us at times and how tiresome it is when we go and travel in our vehicles. You travel to vacation, maybe it's five or six hours away. And when you get there, you're tired. You're whipped. I never understood that as a kid. When we, when we, we would go to Panama City, that's where it was at. And, and as we arrived there, I'm ready to go. I'm ready to hit the beach. Let's go, let's go play. We're unpacked. Come on. And my dad's like, let me just rest. Just rest for a minute. I'm a little tired from our journey in the Toyota Camry. All right. We had air conditioner, we had comfortable seats, but yet it wears you out when you travel. Think about when you hop on a plane, if you're going to a faraway distance and you have multiple planes you need to catch and walking through the airport. And when you finally get to where you need to be, you go, man, I'm exhausted from all of that flying. But really what you did, you sat and probably watched Netflix while you flew across the country. And you say, man, that's, that's tiring. And then you add in kids, which is a wonderful part of traveling. But can you imagine the children as they were traveling to Jerusalem? I mean, how many times did they ask the question, are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? When are we going to be in Jerusalem? Now, I'm not sure, but it's just my opinion. But I really believe that this was the time when travel bingo was created. We need to give the kids something. Just get their attention off of, are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? So if they didn't have to travel with their animals and sacrifices, it was a very kind act to have them provided their in Jerusalem, but that kind act turned to a very selfish endeavor where people could make money. And that's what the temple became, a money-making place. And so, out of convenience now, it turns people away from God. So was it the buying and selling of animals that was so bad? No, not really, because that could have been done in a proper manner. But it was not the proper venue to be selling these animals. This was not a house of trade and especially not a house of corrupt trade, which it had become. And so every Jew had to pay to the temple treasury an annual tax of half a shekel. So as they arrived, they had to pay a tax. It could only be paid in sacred currency. Foreign coins were not accepted because an emblem of a foreign king would be seen as polluting the temple. So we can have that. So this act of saving pollution turned into a wretched act of polluting the temple. Money changers hiked the exchange rates in order to fill their own pockets. It became a place of business, no longer a place of worship. And so the temple was designed to point people to God, and now they're pointing people away from God, promoting a love for money, not a love for God. This is what A.W. Pink has to say. He says, the poor were shamefully cheated and the worship of God was hindered and impoverished instead of being facilitated and enriched. That was the purpose of the temple so that worship could be facilitated and enriched, but instead hindered and impoverished. But enter Jesus to the scene. And I want to remind you today that Jesus is not only the Lamb of God, but he is a lion. And a lion walks up into this scene. A most righteous, good, strong, mighty, powerful lion is walking into the temple. 
You say, oh yeah, I knew that. I knew he was a lion. I've seen Chronicles of Narnia. But also we see this in scripture. Revelation 5, 5. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And as we behold John chapter two, we see Jesus is not a cowardly lion. He is a kingly lion, clearing the temple courts of all mockery or mockery and hypocrisy. As king, he drives out sin from the temple. This is our King Jesus, a lion. He attacks a corrupt system. As a lion is the king of the forest, Jesus is the king of the temple. And he drives everyone out with a divine order and a divine fury. As one pastor says, Jesus boils when he sees godliness as a covering for gain. Religion as a front for greed. So you say this is a miracle. How is it a miracle? Well, he wraps some cords together that would have come from other animals and he makes a whip, like a really good whip, not a flimsy whip. A whip is going to do damage. And he begins to use this whip. I didn't say he hit people with it, but if he wanted to, he's God. He can do it. But this would have included 300 workers and possibly up to 10,000 people in a crowded area. It's a lot of people to scatter at once. Nobody fights back. Nobody tries to take Jesus out at the knees. Nobody tries to hit him in the face. They they move. They, They go at his command. Why? Because he is the king. They don't even realize that they're moving at the king's command but everybody begins to move out of the temple. Do you want evidence that he is the king of the temple? Here it is, the sovereignty of God on display. Everyone leaves. They just go. Jesus literally whips the house into shape. He drives out the nonsense. Aren't you grateful that Jesus drives out sin that he drives out the nonsense, not only here in this temple, but he can do that in our lives. We need the whip. We need to be chastised. We need to be corrected. We need discipline from the Lord. We need him to drive out sin from us regularly. Because many times we make our temple where the Holy Spirit dwells here on this earth, we make it a house of many other things besides worship unto God. But here, Jesus cleanses the temple of its sinful pollution and irreverent worship. It's bad enough that we have taken the world that God has made and claimed it as our own. People didn't back then as well, but now these people have taken the temple of God and made it their very own. So what did he do? He poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. Christ turns the tables on the greedy extortioners and gives a stern rebuke. Here's what he says. Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. You see, corruption always follows those who put man in place of God. So Jesus has zeal for the house of God. Maybe 
There were others who saw all of the corruption taking place year after year after year, but nobody said anything. But when it came to Jesus, he had zeal for the house of God. He speaks up, and here he makes an everlasting statement. And here we are today, beholding this statement. And we see it in verse 17, his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Now, whether they realize that in the moment, or it's probably that they realize that later looking back on the scene, how amazing it is to make the connection. Zeal for your house will consume me. Psalm 69, 9. For zeal for your house has consumed me and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. John MacArthur points out this. That's how you know you are spiritually mature. When God is dishonored and you feel the pain. Reflect upon your week. Were there settings in which you heard the name of God dishonored? Did you feel the pain? Does it bother you when you hear someone take the Lord's name in vain? whether they're adding another word to it or they're just flippantly using his name over and over again in a casual sentence. Does that bother you? Do you feel the pain? Does it bother you enough that you would not dare use his name in vain? That you strive, if there's anything else in your life, one thing you're going to make sure you don't do is curse God that you revere his name as spoken out loud. See here, Jesus is seeing God dishonored in the temple and he feels the pain and he does something about it. John 2, 18 through 21. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it. In three days, I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple. And you will raise it up in three days. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. So Jesus really turns the tables on them now. The Passover lamb is standing right there in front of them. The whole reason for the month's preparation for the one week of Passover. And he's standing right there in front of them, the true lamb of God. And their response is, can you give us a sign? We'd like to see something. The sign is standing right in front of you. I give you a sign. It's not going to do any good. In fact, that's what Jesus says in Matthew 16, 4. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. Oh, the sign of Jonah. You mean the man who was drowning in the water and a big fish came and gulped him up and then didn't like how he tasted and then threw him up on the shore? You mean that? What is Jesus talking about? Jesus is saying that whole story was real. Yeah, Jonah experienced it, but yet it was a picture of what was to come, of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. He says, you want a sign? You'll see a sign. You'll see a sign. Today you may say, God, if you just show me a sign, observe the sign of Jonah. Do you believe that Jesus died for real sin? Do you believe that he rose from the grave? That he is all powerful, that he has conquered sin? Do you believe this today? That is the sign that you need to trust. And this is the sign he points to, the sign of Jonah, but they don't get it because they're caught up on the temple, the physical. 
Jesus says, destroy this temple, and in three days, I will raise it up. This statement bewilders the Jewish leaders. They don't even know where to go with this. It has taken 46 years to build this temple. They're proud of this temple. This temple is mighty in stature. In fact, when we see in the book of Mark, as the disciples are walking past, they're saying, Jesus, would you look at this temple? This is amazing. And Jesus says, not one block will be left upon another. He was speaking of the destruction that would happen in 70 AD. Look to me. I'm the one who is incredible. I am the true temple. So as the lionly lamb and the lamely lion, Jesus Christ has the authority to lay his life down and to take it up again. He was speaking about the temple of his body. If you're here and today you've always looked at Jesus as being weak and cowardly and wimping out and not standing up for himself and not cursing the people and killing Pilate right there on the spot. It's because Jesus was the one with the authority and he used that authority to die, to lay down his life. He was not cowardly. He was brave. He was kingly. He knew what his people needed and he provided it for them. John 10, 18, no one takes it from me, but I'll lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I received from my father. So the temple. Jesus is standing here before all of these leaders and he says, you tear this temple down, three days I'll raise it back up. Why was this so bewildering to the leaders? Well, the temple was the focal point where God met with believers through the offering of a bloody sacrifice. And Jesus is saying that he is the greater temple, the one to supersede the former temple built with human hands. Regardless if it took 46 years, it was built with human hands. And it is through his own bloody sacrifice, the laying down of himself, that he brings new believers to God the Father. So Jesus reveals here that he is the greater temple. They don't see it, but the truth is before them. And I hope that you see it today. Jesus is the greater temple, the one to bring us into worship. Acts 17, 24 through 25, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. So Jesus is saying, I'm the true temple, but there's also a foreshadowing of what's going to happen to that current temple. It's going to crumble. It's not going to be rebuilt again because Christ is going to be rebuilt. Christ is going to rise in three days after his death. He's the only temple that we need. What would be the purpose of having another temple here on this earth? Because the Holy Spirit dwells within us. So Jesus' desire for true worshipers, the church, is for pure worship through a right relationship with God the Father through the Son. So we say, how is this possible? For all that I have done, my, my body is filled with corruption, of sin. How is it possible that I could have worship? Well, what we need to observe here is that the way we worship reveals what we think of God. And we can see how they thought of God 
and the way that they were changing money and creating a huge scandal and taking advantage of people at a most opportune time. When everybody should be looking to the Lord, they were looking to money. What tables would Jesus flip in your life today? As he intervenes in your life, what needs to be turned around? What needs to be turned over? Where's the corruption? Where have we gotten our eyes off of Jesus? We're talking about you and me as followers of Christ, because I want to make mention of this, that this building here is not a temple. You did not enter into this building today, and you did not enter into the Holy of Holies. (laughs) You did not enter in a place that's going to make you more holy by walking through those physical doors into this physical room, being in this room more than if you walked into McDonald's today. I don't know, that's that's a stretch. It's not being in this building that's a temple. It's your body being transformed into a temple in which the Holy Spirit dwells. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 through 20. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. Would you say that statement with me? You are not your own. We're going to say it one more time. You are not your own. So grateful for that. Why are we not our own? Verse 20 tells us, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Jesus is too hard. I don't want to be holy. I don't want to be faithful. I don't want to read your word. I don't want to pray. I don't want to ever be in a situation where I would have to offend somebody by sharing Jesus. I I don't want to have to give up these habits. I don't want to do... You are not your own. You are bought with a price. So in response, glorify God in your body. So what sinful pollution have we allowed to stain our temples this week? Here's the joy. You can confess that to the Lord and be cleansed. Be cleansed. Be healed, Christian. Oh, and if you're not a Christian, Today, if you realize, yes, I have sinned against God, I have offended him, and I deserve what's coming towards me, justice and judgment. Put your faith in Jesus and be saved today. Trust that what he did on the cross, when he shed his blood upon that frame of the cross, will save you from the coming judgment. and That your body can be filled with the Holy Spirit so that you can honor God and worship him daily. What is eternal life? that we may know God, that we may know God. So we need to take care of our temple and we need to trust Jesus as the true temple. Meaning we take care of ourselves, but have you ever heard this? Our temples, we need to take care, time out, let's go again. My temple or my body is my temple. You ever heard that before? My body's my temple. That's why I work out. It's my temple. Got to take care of my temple. I eat right because my body is my temple. I sleep right because my body is my temple. 
And all those things are good. Like, that's good stewardship. It can be very good stewardship. But did you know it could be the same scene when Jesus comes and flips over tables if all you care about your temple is that on the outside it looks good? I want to walk on the beach and people go, man, he must work out. Is that what you care about for your temple? I want to eat right because I, I never want to be at that weight that I used to be. Understandable, understandable. But is that all? What about so that you're, you can use your body in, in great stewardship for the glory of God? You see, even really good things in life, we could take those and say, I care more about that than my body being used for the temple for Christ to reign. A lot of times we just think of all the things, oh yeah, I don't know anything about those sins, but what about the sins of pride when we care more about the physical than we do the spiritual that's taking place in us? Jesus will cleanse you so that you can take care of your temple. And it can be all about Christ. That transforms your thinking, that transforms your motive so that when you do eat and when you do drink and when you do work out and when you fast, you can do all of it for the glory of God. Do all of it for the glory of God. So we fill ourselves with the truth of God's word and there remain zealous for his kingdom come. His will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is what Jesus is pointing out here in the temple. He's clearing it out. He's saying, you're not looking to the Passover lamb standing right here in front of you and you've missed it. Do you see him today? I hope you see him today because we fast forward and here it is, verse 22. When therefore he was raised from the dead, the disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Do you believe his word today? And has Christ turned the tables in your life? Are you worshiping God today through Christ Jesus and it's the power of the Holy Spirit working in you? Is that happening in you today? Are you a follower of Jesus? If you are, take heed to this. I hope you've been examining your heart today according to the word so that when we go forth from this place, man, we will be a temple that dwells here on this earth in which the spirit of God works through us. And with that, as we talked about this morning in our small group, what confidence we will have. We will be established, an established presence. Because when the spirit of God is in the tabernacle or in the temple, there in the midst of all the others, there was an established presence. And when the Holy Spirit reigns in your life, you are an established presence here pointing people to Jesus and taking joy in Christ. Let us pray. Father, thank you for this scene? Did it anger Jesus to see the temple of God profaned? Today, may we feel the pain of the defilement and the pollution, the distractions. May we not run from you but may we come before you.
Because if Jesus has flipped the tables in our lives, that means that we can come to your table. Thank you that we can have fellowship with you. You love us. You forgive us. You make us a new creation. May we be mindful this week of the tables that need to be overturned or have been overturned in our lives. May we not run back to try to set them up, but let them stay face down so that we may worship you freely. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.